Hey, thanks everybody. That was uh, James, Pastor James. What an awesome, awesome guy you are. We are delighted to be here. Uh, uh, Pastor James, I met at a conference back in September and I was actually speaking there and he came up to me at a resource table and talked to my wife, Missy, and just said, would I ever consider coming in? I said, I would love to do that. And uh, you know, really not knowing if he would follow up on that. A lot of people say that, but you're not sure if that's going to happen. And he, he did. And we set this time up and uh, I, I really do believe that, you know, the, the church is based upon spirit-led relationships. I'm not really a big organizational guy and, you know, self-promotion and all that type of stuff. There's usually too much of that in the church anyhow, I think. And so us coming in, I didn't know what to expect, uh, you know, at all. We had a great time yesterday. You have a great leadership team. You have a great pastor and his wife. We had a chance to go out with them last night, you know, and all their four kids were us with us and we were out for uh, like two hours and the kids were almost like angels, almost like angels, almost like angels, you know, but... Uh, <laughs> But they were they were awesome. We just have had a great time, and so we do feel that God has led us here. We do feel that this is a uh, God ordained you know time and a relationship in many different ways. And let me just give you a little bit of my uh, you know context, and then I'm going to tell you part of my uh, part of my story that has really shaped my life. And I like to do this when I go into the churches for kind of for the first time. It gives you a, a window into who I am and what has shaped me and what God has done in my life. But uh, I grew up in a pastor's home. My dad was an Assemblies of God pastor uh, since my age, since the age of six, when I was six. And he moved to Savannah, Tennessee, if you know where Savannah, Tennessee is at. We lived in Michigan at the time. He moved there and became a, a pastor there. So I grew up in the church. And then uh, several, a couple years later, he moved to Dyer, Tennessee. Dyer's in West Tennessee, kind of up above Jackson. And, and uh, he pastored there for a long, long time. I went to Central Bible College, the Assemblies of God school there in the, in the 70s. And that's where I was trained and graduated. And then uh, my late wife uh, was Canadian, and we moved to Canada for a while, and then I moved to Cleveland, Ohio. So I've been in the north almost, you know, the last 35 years or so, or even longer. So from, from Cleveland, I moved to Minnesota, so I wanted to get a little bit more cold weather, so I was there for a while, you know. Now I'm back in Cleveland, and... Um, but someday, if I could talk my wife into it, will you pray with me? I want to move back to Tennessee at some time, but my wife, uh, she doesn't like snakes, like, you know, I grew up with shooting snakes. That's what we did Sunday afternoon in West Tennessee. You know, after church, we'd go out and shoot snakes. So, you know, it's no big deal to me. But, you know, but uh, so it's good to be back. I have a brother who lives here in Knoxville, and he has a son who's here with his family. So we have a chance to, to see them as well. But we are delighted that we are here. I uh, pastored two, I've only pastored two churches uh, in my pastoral time. And for one, I pastored in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. For 25 years, it was a church that was a, a church plant born really out of the Catholic charismatic renewal in the 80s. A lot of people began to get saved and come to that that church. And then uh, I'll tell you my story in just a moment. Then when Missy and I got married, then I moved to Minneapolis. But the thing that I did not know and the thing that uh, Pastor James and I have now in common, and I think I'm kind of in maybe hopefully encouraging him because of this, in both of those congregations, <laughs> smile if you would, please. In, uh, in both of those congregations, we started out in schools. Yeah. So I know you have another campus. We appreciate that, you know, and you have a place to really to work out of, but moving to this. And so the one in Cleveland, we were in a high school auditorium. Take a deep breath, if you would, please, for 20 years. <laughs> Wow. We set up and tore down. I mean, stage, children's ministry, you know, and we grew there to eight, eight to 900 people in the high school auditorium. So I want to, you know, believe and prophesy that we'll take this screen, this screen down next time I'm back and just continue to build and build and build and build and build. Matter of fact, the Lord gave me a word this morning. 
that was connected to what uh, Michael shared, uh, and I didn't know what he was going to share at all, but as we were worshiping, and I just appreciate the worship time, uh, it's uh, Galatians uh, 6, maybe you know what, I believe it's 6 9, where it just says, you know, uh, we, we, we reap what we sow, but the next one is that uh, not to lose heart, because we'll reap at the right time. And I just felt that for you as a, as a congregation, for you, James, as well, because you guys continue to reap, continue to sow, continue to be faithful. And at the right time, at the Kairos moment, at the spike time in God's economy, you know, he will open up the door and you'll continue to grow and God will see what uh, he's doing as well. So then I moved to Minnesota. And when I moved to Minnesota, it had been a church plant there and the church had grown quite a bit and the, uh, the leader got in uh, moral trouble and the church had gone in every different direction and uh, I ended up going there. And when I moved there, the first Sunday I was there was 73 people in a 600-seat high school auditorium when I moved, when I walked into this church in Minneapolis. And so uh, God, in within two years, uh, gave us a building, and we grew to about four to 500 folks there, you know, over about eight years. So God can do it. Amen? Amen. God can do it, and he will do it for you guys as well. So continue to, to be faithful. Let me, I want to talk, talk to you about my, uh, kind of my life story and uh, I'll, I'll really just kind of share a little bit more about, uh, as I walk here. I like to walk, but it's my life story. And I want to talk to you about uh, navigating life's unforeseen turns. Anybody had any uh, turns in life that you didn't expect, you know? Uh, there's three things I've learned about life, uh, more than three, but three of them may give you real fast. One, one, number one is how quickly life flies by. <laughs> it just goes by so, so fast. Pastor Kevin, who's here and, you know, is, is 88. And I guess if you ask him, you know, he was just turned 88. I talked to him in the lobby January the 22nd, 88. And if you ask him, he would say how fast life has gone. And it just goes by so, so, so fast. My dad, who's still alive and lives in West Tennessee and pastors a church there, you know, he's 86 years of age. And I just can't believe he's 86 years of age. I still remember when I was six, seven, eight years, nine years of old playing, you know, baseball and uh, Little League and Dyer and et cetera. It just it goes by so fast. I can't believe that I'm 60. Even when I say it, it's like I'm 60 years of age. I turned 60 on November the 27th. And just to say it, it's like it doesn't seem, it just doesn't seem right. I have kids that are 35, 33, 28. And to think about that, I graduated from high school 30, no, 43 years ago. So just how fast it goes. And I'm also now, I didn't bring any pictures. A lot of times I bring pictures. But I'm also now for the first time, guess what? I'm a grandfather, my grandson, uh, 10 months old, you know, so I just can't believe how fast life goes. You know, if you're young here, it will go fast for you as well. My parents used to tell me that all the time, you know, Kenny, you just got to watch out. Life goes by foot so fast. Little kid, you don't think about it, but now the older you get, it just goes by fast, fast, fast. That's one thing I've learned about life. Second thing I've learned about life is you have to live the whole journey. I'm no longer enamored with people or with churches or with leaders or with celebrities or with anything else who has a bright spot and a bright window window for 10 years. Matter of fact, the longer that I go, the more I'm uh, you know encouraged by those who are faithful. They live a life of uh, stewardship and they're faithful and they're faithful the entire uh, entirety of their life. A little story to illustrate this: basketball was my kind of my sport, and I played basketball in high school and college and etc. And it was kind of my sport, and I was a, I was a guard. And in 1972, a guy in front of me, uh, ahead of me in school, at Dyer High School, his name was Steve Barron. Little bitty uh, school in, in rural West Tennessee. And Steve Barron that year was the uh, top leading scorer in the state of Tennessee. And he, he averaged 31 points a game. That was before the three-pointer. And basically, my, my responsibility was get the ball down the court, read the defense, you know, see what they were doing, and get it to Steve Barron and get out of the way. And Steve Barron would kind of take it from there. 
His second year, his senior year uh, in, uh, in uh, high school, he was the third leading scorer in the state. They kind of figured out who Steve Barron was and how to do, you know, box defenses and the whole bit, but he was still the third leading scorer in the state of Tennessee. Here's my point. He got a huge scholarship to Division I school out west, and he went out there to play basketball, and he was only there, he, only, he was only able to, to stay six months because he was homesick, he had a girlfriend back home, he wanted to come back to the little Dyer, Tennessee. So he left a great opportunity, and he came back in Dyer. Steve Barron died about two years ago. I was still friends with him on Facebook. He, he, died, he, he died two years ago, and Steve Barron died an alcoholic. What's my point? A five-year window of being a superstar doesn't mean a whole lot. We have to live the whole journey. It's how you start, it's how you go, it's how you finish. Then the third thing I found about life is live long, a lot, live long enough and all of us have unexpected turns in life. Live long enough and all of us have unexpected turns in life. I was on a uh, whitewater rafting trip uh, many, many years ago. It was from uh, our church in, 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 uh, in Cleveland. And every uh, year, the men, we would go on a big whitewater rafting trip. And this is actually us in this. Uh, that's me right here in the glasses with my mouth open right there, you know, ah, right there. That's, and that's actually on that trip. And we were on the trip up, it was up in Pennsylvania, and we were on, we were on a river up there. And we got there the night before. We gro drove up there the night before, a whole bunch of us, and we camped out, you know, and we were around the campfire, and we were talking about, you know, men's stuff and whatever. Early the next morning, we got up and we went down, you know, to get to, to the outrigger to get all set up to go on our whitewater rafting trip. And we'd never been on this particular river before. And it had, uh, it had rained a lot, and we'd had a lot of snow as well, and it was in the springtime of the year. And they said to us, you know, the, uh, the, the white water is at level four. Level five, they won't let you go. Level four, if iffy, you really want to go about level two and level three. So it was level four. They said, you know, you can still legally, you can still go, but we don't want you to know this going to be, it could be pretty bit rough, you know. And all the guys, you know, we're ready to go, you know. So we, so they give us a little bit of instruction, and the instruction is they tell us kind of how to do it, and they tell us if you get out of the boat, make sure you keep your legs up, because if you don't, you'll get caught in some uh, rocks and you can break your legs and those type of things. So they told us all those things, how to do those things. And so we started off and I started off with these four guys. They were part of the, the team I was with. And, you know, we just kind of started off meandering. It was just a nice little thing. And this, we were thinking, you know, this is fun and we're really enjoying this. And oh, we took that little curve fine and we're doing fine. And they had warned us of what was called devil's kettle. Say devil's kettle, if you would, you can, you know, just the name t says it all. They said there's one place that's the worst place in the in the river, and you really need to watch it. It's Devil's Kettle. So we had already taken some white water. We thought we were doing really really good, and we got to Devil's Kettle. And when we got to Devil's Kettle, we started you know going down there, and we were going wow wow. You know we were having fun. You know it was, it was just a great time. And then we hit a rock. I was on the side, had been holding on. You know I was doing the the oar, and it flipped me off. And immediately I was in this devil's kettle. And of course, they have safety people who are on the sides or people who are, tra uh, who are trailing with you on, in kayaks. They're looking for you, you know, in case you get in trouble. And I had one of my friends, the guy who was on that side of the boat over there, he jumped out, you know, so he was, it was a dumb thing to do, but, you know, it was a good friendship thing to do. Now he was in trouble, and I was really in trouble in a very short amount of time. And life had been going fine, the trip had been going fine, that all of a sudden my unexpected turn happened. The guys in the kayaks finally came over. They threw me a line. They got me back in the raft. It had drifted down. They got me back in the raft. And I was wheezing and wheezing and wheezing. And they said, you know, now the next time this happens, and I was thinking, next time? I don't think so, you know. But for all of us, 
we have unexpected turns. Live long enough, and for all of us, we have unexpected turns. Let me tell you my story. The date was March 9th, 2004. I had gotten up, and when I would gotten up, my bedroom was upstairs, and I went downstairs and got coffee. It was a Tuesday morning, and for me, I'd, I'd taken Monday off for, you know, always had taken Monday off. So Tuesday was kind of my first work day. So on, I got my coffee, went downstairs, and my wife, her name was Debbie, joined me for coffee downstairs, and we had our coffee, and we had our devotions together. And we were talking about just normal stuff, you know, regarding the week and where we were supposed to be and where were the kids supposed to be and who was coming over Wednesday night, what were we going to do Thursday night, just, you know, kind of think about the, the whole thing of the week. And we went upstairs, and I kissed my wife, Debbie, and I said goodbye to her, and I headed off to the health club to go work out before I went to the office. And my wife was going to take my daughter, her name is Nicole, to our office. She was one of our receptionists, and she was going to drop her off. And then after that, she was actually going to go to a women's Bible study that she went to every uh, every uh, two weeks. She went to this women's Bible study. So she dropped me off, and I went to work out. We went our separate ways. I just got finished working out, and I was heading home to shower before I went to the uh, to the office. And I was on Interstate 90, uh, heading heading east in the Cleveland, Ohio area where I lived at the time. And I still remember that I was about to get off uh, on an exit and my cell phone rang. And when the cell phone rang, it was my daughter, Nicole, from my office, from our, our church office. And she said, hey, Dad, the hospital is called. Mom's had a wreck and the hospital's looking for you. That's all we knew. We didn't know if she had a little fender bender. She was, you know, checking her back out. She had broken her leg. Everything was okay. Okay. All we knew is the hospital was calling and they were looking for me. The hospital didn't know that they'd got my daughter. They simply found my work number. They'd call the work number when they answered the receptions have to be my daughter. My daughter took the message. My daughter had my cell phone. So she called me. And so she said, dad, here's what's happening. Mom's had a wreck. They're looking for you. I was on my way home, went on home, picked up my son, Britton. My son Britton was at the, at the house at the time. We went on to the hospital. And as I went to the hospital, I called and realized that the wreck had been fairly severe. And I walked in. And what had begun as a normal day for me, my wife of 25 years, 47 years of age, was lying in a coma in front of me. That was my unexpected. The story goes that if she dropped my daughter off at our offices, she headed down to the Bible, women's Bible study, and they believed that she had a brain aneurysm. And she had a brain aneurysm. She was just on a two-lane road. You know, she was only going 35 miles an hour, and she passed out. And when she passed out, she went through a red light. And as she was going through a red light, she was heading south, and a young man in an SUV, 21 years of age, was on his way to work, and he was heading west. He had the green light. It was a blind spot. There was a convenience store there and a pine tree, you know, and he was heading west, and he couldn't see her. And as he went, she went through the red light, he had the green light, and he went through and hit her. She was going 35 miles an hour. He was going 25 miles an hour. And uh, she, her head hit the, the windshield. And between the brain aneurysm and the brain damage that happened in the wreck, my wife of 25 years, 47 years of age, Two kids at home. My daughter was 21. My son was 19. Passed away. This is a picture of my wife. So my life was turned upside down. Let me share with you in the little time I've got left, but let me just share with you uh, 
how this has shaped my life. And let me give you five overarching principles of how to navigate unforeseen turns in your life. Okay? Let me give you five ideas. Turn, if you would, to the book of Romans. Turn, if you would, to the book of Romans. Chapter 8. It's a passage that you're very familiar with, but let me just, for just a moment, let me give you the first point. Here's the first thing that I've, I've realized, is as you navigate through unexpected turns in life, one of the things, the first point I want to say, the overarching principle, is you have to realize that life is going to shape you. That's one of my life messages. As we go through life, all of us are going to experience things. It's not going to be not may not be as dramatic as, you know, my wife's passing, but we're going to experience things. It may be small things. It may be big things. It may be things as dramatic as this. It may be things as difficult as this. But what I've learned and what I'm learning is that life is going to shape us. And God will use those things if we allow him to, to shape us more and more to the image of his son. But life is going to shape us. And we can either become, you know, uh, twisted up or we can become transformed by the things that come into our life as well. Look at Romans chapter 8. Biblical principle here, Romans chapter 8, verse uh, 28. And we know that in all things, say all things, please. All things. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Jerry, if you would bring up the next NIV of the same verse. I believe it's in here, the very next one. The very next slide, I think it is. Nope, it's not there. Okay, I thought it was. My, that was my point. That was my, that was my fault, I guess. Okay. NIV, though, one of the, uh, the uh, translations says that, that God knew from the outset what he was doing by Jesus, his son, would actually be the, the, the pattern or he would be the one that would be shaped that we were to follow. So we're to be conformed into the image of his son. Go to Galatians, if you would. Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. And here's what Paul says. Verse 19, he says this, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth, until what? Until Christ is formed in you. So the question I ask, and I've been asking myself, and the question I ask other people, as we go through life, would you say, how is life shaping you? Are you becoming more and more like Jesus, or is it twisting you into, into some other way? Let me just read, this is from the little book that uh, Pastor James talked about, uh, that I wrote in response to my wife's passing, and here's what I said regarding this point. Within weeks of my wife's accident, it became clear that how I responded to her death and the difficult days ahead would indeed shape me. It wasn't a question of if the tragedy would shape me. It was only a question of how it would shape me. Would it change me for the better or for the worse? Would it move me towards or away from whom I hope to become? The answer would be determined by my response. The choice was mine. I go on to write this. Earlier in my life, my approach during times of difficulty was never how should I respond. In fact, my pattern was to react the exact opposite. I despise difficulties. 
I found, I fainted during trials. I ran from setbacks. I avoided suffering. My basic response was to cry and complain, kick and scream, whine and pout throughout the entire ordeal. Pity parties were a regularly scheduled event in my life. <laughs> and that's just the way that I was, really. When trials came my way, I was, <laughs> I didn't do that outwardly, but inwardly I did that. But what I began to realize, in 10 years before this, God began to share with me about the James passage. Consider pure joy when you go through these trials because they're going to shape you. So I began to have a mental shift regarding trials to realize I'm going to go through them. You're going through something right now. That's just the way life is. But since I'm going to go through them, I begin to say, if I'm going to go through them, I want to allow God to use them to shape me more and more to the image of his son. Here's what I also wrote about this. For those who did not hold a Christian worldview... The reality that a response to life shape us still holds true. Over the years, I've observed a variety of ways people have responded to difficulty and as a result have been shaped by it. Now listen to this. Take yourself and see which one of these categories you fall into. Here they are. Here's the options. Some become hardened. Others more humble. Some become cynical. Others more grateful. Some grow to resent life. Others discover a deeper purpose to life. Some wilt, others bloom. Some learn to hate, others learn to love. Some become hopeless, others become resilient. Some are blown off course, others are moved away toward their, or moved toward their destiny. Life shapes us. No one's exempt. It's not a question of if, only a question of how. Our response determines the answer. The chores, choice is ours. So the first thing that I learned in going through this is life is going to shape me. And I, be, I began to realize early on how I responded to my wife's tragic death would uh, shape me one way or the other. And now looking back, it's amazing how God has used it to shape me, I think, more and more to the image of his son. I'm not a saint yet. I'm not perfect yet. Just ask my wife. I'm not a saint yet. I'm not perfect yet. Just ask my wife. But God has used it, Romans 8. He uses all things all, say all things again. He uses all things. God didn't cause this, but he uses all things to shape us more and more to the image of his son. The other thing that's very interesting about this is that I am now fulfilling more of God's destiny in my life as a result of what God has done in my life because of this tragedy. It has not pushed me off my course. It has pushed me toward my destiny. So what is happening in your life, God can redeem it no matter what it is. He can redeem it. He can use it in your life and move you toward the destiny that he has for you. Let me give you the second thing that I've learned. And the second thing that I had to learn is that God is God and I am not. I love to worship. I was a worship leader for many, many years. I'm a musician. I love to worship. I love the presence of the Lord. I loved our, our time of worship this morning. I just felt like we could, could have gone on really longer because I wanted to go on longer. So I love to worship. But when this tragedy happened in my life, I had, very, I had difficulty in praying and the reason I had difficulty in praying is because I felt that the relationship between God and I had kind of been broken. So the intimacy of communication and the intimacy of prayer, I had difficulty praying, but I didn't have difficulty in worshiping. And here's the reason why. There's a Greek word, there's a, the, the word for worship, uh, a couple of Greek words in the New Testament on worship. And one of the words is the word proskuneo. And what proskuneo means is the idea of to bow. So I came to a point in my journey a couple months after this, three or four months after this, where I began to realize, God, I, you're God and I'm not. I don't understand this. This is still a mystery to me. I've been the good guy. <laughs> that, was, that was the feeling I had. I've been the good guy. I stayed out of trouble. 
you know, I haven't been in the ditch. I haven't been sinful. I've tried to help people. I've tried to help build churches. I've tried to be a good guy. You know, and why is this happening? The mystery wouldn't go away. But because I understood the idea that God is God and I am not, there was still an understanding that I want to surrender. I'm still lifting my hand. I'm still bowing to you. Now, let me just say to you, growing with the church and the AG church, you know, and for many, many years and pastoring as well, I had sung the song, I Surrender All, many times on the front row with tears running down my face. I surrender all, I surrender all, all to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Of course, most of us, many of us know, as I've sung many times, but you don't understand surrender until there's mystery and turmoil and trial in it where you still say, I don't understand, but I'm still saying that you are God and I'm not. I submit it to you. I still remember when this became very profound in the understanding of this point. And it was after my wife had died. She died on a Friday and all the family had come into town. A lot of my friends were there at the hospital and they'd been praying and et cetera. And she passed away. And it was a long, long, long day at the hospital. And we were on the way home with my son and my daughter, Nicole and Britton. And we were, we were driving home. We were driving home together. This first time the three of us had just been together without people around. And we were driving home and we were driving back to our house. Where the last, it would be the first time back to our house without mom ever being there again. We drove and we started talking about mom. It was uh, the hospital was 15 minutes away, 20 minutes away. So we started talking about mom on our way and through our tears and our pain. And we drove and once we got to our home, we parked in the driveway. And as we parked in the driveway, something miraculous happened. I can look, still look back to it. It was a marking point in our journey. And the thing that happened, two things happened as we were in conversation. Our kids said, my kids said, and all of us said, if one of the four of us had to go home first, we were glad it was mom. Because we wouldn't hurt, want her to be back here feeling the pain that we're now feeling. The second thing we said is we now embraced this, that this was now part of our journey it was going to shape us for the rest of our life. It's something we couldn't deny, couldn't push away. It was something that had now happened to us and that we were going to surrender it to God and let God do what he wanted to do in our own life as we continue to journey on. I'm, I'm glad to, to tell you that my daughter and my son are people who are serving the Lord and leading worship and helping in girls' homes and etc. But But you have to come to a place where you say, God is God and I'm not. Here's my point I want to make to you really Many people never move on from mystery or difficulty or tragedy or disappointment or disillusionment because they don't come to the place of proskuneo where they said, God is God and I'm still not. So I had to say, God is God and I'm still not. Number three, the third thing I want to give you real quick is I had to check my gospel. I had to check my gospel. I got saved at the age of seven. My dad's little church in Savannah, Tennessee, when we moved down there, I still remember it was on a, it was on a Sunday night. My dad had preached. I don't remember what he preached on, but I remember I raised my hand, gave my heart to Jesus Christ, came down to the altar. And so for, you know, 53 years now, I just turned 60, for 53 years now, I've been on this walk with Jesus Christ. I mean, that's a long, long time. I've been a follower of Jesus Christ. I haven't gotten off the path. I haven't had detours. I've tried to be as, you know, a bunch of followers as I can. But what happened when uh, my wife was killed in a car accident, Debbie was killed in a car accident, is I had, to, I had to start checking my gospel again. Because here's what's happened, and oftentimes it's happened in the American church, that we have promised people if they come to Jesus, everything will be put together and right. You know, it's almost like uh, somebody said it's like a... Uh, 
um, country song being played backwards. You know, come to Jesus and get your housewife and get your car, you know, get your, your, your wife back and your house back and your car back and your truck back and your dog back. You know, it's kind of like that. So oftentimes what happens is when people have been sold that bill of good that's not the, true, that, not the totality of the gospel, and they're, they, they're brought in that way, but then when difficulty and when tragedy comes, they begin to realize many people actually check out and uh, move away from their walk with Jesus Christ because they believe they've been sold a bill of good. So I had to ask myself, had I, after this, all these times in this years, was I still following Jesus, the man Jesus, the man Jesus in the middle of difficulty. And here's what I had experienced. I had experienced difficulty and disappointment over the years so that I was carrying a, a, a heavy bag. You know, that's what religion will do to you. I was just like, I was weighed down. And when, that, when this happened to me, I had to throw off all those things and had to return to my first love and my first love to Jesus Christ. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I just heard a great story. Of a, he's a famous German theologian. His name is Karl Barth. And Karl Barth was at, uh, he's written a lot of books. He's well known uh, in the Christian world. And he, it, the story goes that he was at a university and he'd been lecturing. And he was now way up into age. He was uh, way up into age. And one of the students asked Karl Barth, he said, Karl, what have you found? What would you say you, how would you summarize your Christian journey? What, you, how, what have you learned about your Christian faith? And he thought for a moment and he said this. He said it can be sum summarized by a little song I learned in Sunday school. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible <laughs> tells me so. So there's something that happens when we go through difficulty that brings us actually back to the element of, Jesus, I love you. You're the one that won my heart to begin with when I was seven years of age. You're the only one that can continue to move me through. Not only religion, not theology. I had good theology. I had good foundations. I understood God's sovereignty, etc. But I had to fall back in love with the person of Jesus Christ. Let me give you the fourth thing. The fourth idea is the idea of letting God shape us. The first point was life will shape us, but the, the, this point is the idea that let letting God shape us. Let me read something real quick to you. Here's how this happened to me. I clearly remember the morning this principle, how I respond, took root in my life. A few days after my wife's passing, I was making my bed, when right in the middle of tucking in the sheets, my anger surged. A voice in my head screamed, I'm a 47-year-old man starting life all over, making my king-size bed alone. I hate this. This isn't fair. As I straightened the sheets, arranged the comforter, and fluffed the pillows, the irrepressible thoughts continued, and the anger intensified. Then, like a loose cog clicking into place, it became crystal clear. How I respond, even in these moments of seemingly ordinary activities, will determine who I become. That simple thought was revolutionary. As I made my bed the following weeks, instead of occasions for anger and resentment, those domestic chores became opportunities to practice servant and humility, patience and peace, contentment, and gratitude. This new approach wasn't limited to making my bed, but extended to shopping the grocery store, washing dishes, paying the bills, and doing laundry. When the little, listen to this, with the little old lady ahead of me in the express checkout line, chatted with the cashier about her later's doctor's visit, a recent trip to the casino, an update on all 29 grandchildren, 
Would I be pleasant and patient or rude and annoyed? After hitting the golf ball off the same tee into the same woods for the third time, would I be irate or graciously accept my golfing limitations? When the driver behind me honked within a nanosecond of the red light turning green, how would I respond? And then the brackets I said, I still have some work to do in this area. <laughs> All of my daily activities became sacred moments for meaningful formation. Here's something that we've missed in the church, I believe, oftentimes. You know that most of our transformation doesn't happen in this room? <laughs> we worship God, we hear the word, we're instructed, but most of our transformation happens in the ordinary activities throughout the 24-7 day of our life. It's when we want to be rude and we practice patience, you know. It's when we want to be angry and we practice patience. I still remember going to the grocery store because I never did the domestic chores, you know, and I'm in Heinen's, you know, and I'm a, you know, I'm a 47-year-old man trying to figure out, you know, how to buy groceries. And <laughs> the idea is I could either be really, 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 really upset or I could allow that to be a time of transformation in my own life. Let God shape you. God gave me an idea that I did, and it was the Holy Spirit. Let me set this up. 47 years of age, under a lot of pressure, we just built a big building and moved into it. We're, aware, we're only nine months into this building. It was a 36-acre uh, campus, $10 million, $10 million project, et cetera. We moved into it. We'd only been there nine months when my wife's uh, accident happened. So here I was leading a congregation, 47 years of age, two kids at home, a lot of pressure under, on me. And I began to ask the question, uh, how could I do this and how could I do this in a way that God would continue to use this time in my life to shape me more and to point more to the image of his son? And God gave me an idea. This was, a, this was totally a God idea. God gave me an idea. He gave me an idea to use a, a, a nail representing the cross and to put it in my pants pocket uh, all day. And so as I was uh, uh, doing my work or I was out and about or I was at the grocery store or I was playing golf or whatever, uh, when I was tempted to respond in my old man, my old way, not the nature of Christ, I would put my hand in my pocket and when I touched the nail, it would remind me, am I going to respond in the old way or am I going to respond more and more to the nature of Christ? Would I allow this to make me more humble? Would I allow this to make me more gracious? Would I allow this to make me more? And I did that for an entire year. Every night when I got home, I would take the nail out of my, out of my pocket, put it on the, on the dresser. When I got up in the morning to, to dress, I would put the nail in my pocket, and I did that for an entire year. And every time I would stick my hand in my pocket and say, am I going to allow this situation I'm in right now to shape me into the image of his son or more and more to show, sow into the wrong pattern? And I'm thankful to say I still have that nail in my pocket. This is the actual nail. We don't sell them on the resource table. They're not for sale today. So this is <laughs> But let me ask you, let me ask you, when things come your way, 24-7 things, are you allowing them to shape you more and more than the image of That's where transformation occurs. I know Pastor James is a great communicator and a great preacher. We, we like to say, you know, amen, and those are good. We need, we need to be fed. But our transformation happens 24-7, Monday through Saturday, in those little things of life, how we respond to them. Let me give you the last point. And the last point is keep your dreams alive. Life shapes us. God is God and I'm not. Check our gospel. Let God shape us into the image of his son. And number five, keep your dreams alive. It was only three or four months after my wife's passing. I got a phone call from a mutual friend and, uh, who had had a, a friend that was coming into town who had had a tragedy as well. And he wanted to meet with me. And he came into town. He lived in Virginia Beach. He came into town, met with me for lunch. His name was Mike. 
Mike had just got married, hadn't been married too long, and Mike's wife was, uh, it was a first year anniversary, Mike's wife was expecting. Mike had been working double shifts to get enough money to go away. They were going to go away and celebrate their first year anniversary. He had worked a double shift, came home, showered, packed. They got in the car. On the way to where they were going to have their anniversary, the hotel where they were going to stay for their, their first year anniversary, Mike fell asleep at the wheel, ran into the back of a semi-truck and killed his wife and his, pregnant, and his, 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 his uh, unborn daughter. Mike sitting now across the dinner, the diner table for me. What do you say? We had our conversation where his faith was at, how it had you know affected him, the questions he was asking, the guilt he was you know carrying, those type of things. We had our meal. We went down to the lake on Lake Erie, walked the beach for a while, and then about an hour later we sat on a rock. And we were sitting on a rock. It wasn't too far from Bay Village. And we, we sat on the rock. And as we were talking, here's what I said to Mike. I said, Mike, one of the things I'm learning in the middle of my tragedy, this is probably about six months after my wife's, is that somehow I've got to keep my dreams alive. Why? Because dreams provoke hope, and hope keeps us alive. God's hope that he gives us, what he wants to do in our life. You know the biggest lie I had when this happened to me? One, my biggest lie was is I would never have a meaningful marriage again, which I now do with my wife, Missy. You know, Missy right here, we've been married 10 years, and just we have a story as well. Two, that I would never have a meaningful ministry again, and God's led me, and I'm, you know, having a, a fruitful life as well. But that was the enemy, that was the enemy, the lie that he was giving me, and I had to keep my hopes alive. My son, his name is Britton, who's a professional musician, about six, seven years ago, his wife, her name's Amanda, wanted to take him uh, to a Bob Dylan concert. He loved Bob Dylan, and like most musicians, and he had listened to his music and read his stuff and whatever, and he was going to take him to Bob Dylan. He'd never been there. I was living in Minnesota at the time. He was still living in Cleveland. So she took him to a Bob Dylan concert. And a couple of days later on the phone, uh, I called him and we were talking. I said, hey, how did you like the concert with Bob Dylan? He said, dad, man, the guy, the road has beat him up. He looks old, man. I can't believe how old he is. But then he said this, but when he plays, he comes alive. Living out of our heart that God gives us, living out of our passion. Here's what I find that many people, life kills their dreams that God has given them, and it's very difficult then to keep hope alive as you're going through tragedy and adversity. But what has God said to you? Here's what I've learned. God's good. God's faithful. God will redeem it. God's good. Say with me if you would, please. God's good. God's faithful. God will, will redeem it. Bow your heads if you would, please. Father, I thank you, and every one of us in this room has a story. We're all on a journey. We're at different places and different stages and different ages and Some of us can relate to a difficulty like my story. Some of us in this room have, have experienced tragedy. Others in this room have experienced the, the question marks, the mystery that life brings their way. Why is this happening? Why didn't this happen? 
Why haven't you come through? Why is there a downturn here? Why is there disappointment with my kids? Why is there disillusionment? Why haven't I come into greater health? Why is there a downturn in my job? Why is there close relationships that have drifted away? Why is why did the, why did the divorce occur? Why did a child die? Holy Spirit, I'd ask that you would help all of us in our journey to know and to answer the question that, you know, life is going to shape us. And to ask, are we becoming more and more shaped into the image of your son? Is this is life hardening us? Are we becoming cynical? Or is hope being dissipated? Is unbelief drifting in? Is bitterness ruling? Or is the, we allowing the opposite to occur? <laughs> greater faith, greater humility, greater patience, greater gentleness, greater joy, greater freedom, greater trust. I ask for, Holy Spirit, your wisdom for people who are going through things right now that they will allow those things to shape them into the image of your Son. Small things, big things. Lord, I also ask for people today who their dreams have been shattered. Not just dreams that they've made, not just dreams that we try to fantasies to keep us alive, but dreams that you've put in our hearts, dreams of who we want to become, dreams of what you've told us to accomplish. And somehow life has put the flame out or and we're just living in existence, but we're not living the life that you came to give and came to give in abundance. So Father, I ask that in Jesus' name. And Father, I thank you for it. Lord, I pray over this congregation, Emmanuel, Son of God, Lord, what you are doing in them right now, how are you are you are placing them deep, how it's a rooting season, establishing time, what you're doing in them, what you want to do through them, what you're going to do for them. I pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen.